Hi, everyone. It's Jen DeWall. And on this week's episode of The Leadership Habit by Crestcom, I had a conversation with Cordell Carter all about how to build a culture of belonging. Cordell truly has such a unique experience. He is traveling around the world, working with leaders from many different countries and cultures. So if there is an individual to talk to about how to create culture belonging, it is him. Cordell brings more than 20 years to his pursuit of a society and organizational culture where everyone belongs and has equitable opportunities to thrive. He is currently the executive director of the Aspen Institute Socrates Program, a global education forum, and the founding director of the Aspen Institute's Project on Belonging. Finally, Cordell founded the Festival of the Diaspora, a Medellin, Colombia-based convener of diasporic communities across the Americas. Before his current roles, Cordell has held leadership roles with the Tectown Foundation, Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, Business Roundtable, the National Alliance for Public Charter Schools, and the IBM Corporation. He has such a wealth of knowledge that he brought into our conversation on how to build a culture of belonging. Enjoy. Cordell Carter, it is so great to be here with you. I'm so happy that you're our guest today to talk about how to build a culture of belonging, something that we know is so incredibly important to our workplaces right now. And it's an incredibly important skill or effort that leaders really need to be mindful of. And I'm grateful to have you, especially because you are a man about many towns. Yes, yes. (laughs) You went to Brazil this week. You're in New York right now. You are traveling around the world doing what you love. So could you go ahead and just tell us a little bit more about what brings you around the world? How did you land where you are? Tell us more about well, Jen, thank you so much for having me on. It's always good to be seen, as the old folks used to say. Uh, when they said, good to see you, it was good to be seen. Hey, that's true indeed. Uh, so I am, you know, I, I'm the belonging evangelist. I've been engaged in this idea of bringing people together since I was a little boy. I'm, I'm the son of ministers, and uh, our Sunday table was always a full one. And um, I am absolutely accustomed to bringing folks in. And I believe in karma. And I remember being a lonely college student in hallways. I couldn't travel home. And people brought me to their table. And so it's a tradition that I continue with my now high school senior. You know, every Thanksgiving, we've got some folks at the table that she has never seen because I just don't believe in leaving people out. And so uh, this path to belonging via the Asp Institute and other endeavors of mine was very, very natural. It's like falling into my own personal universal own, you know, like, oh yeah, that's, that's typically the background music of this guy's life. He's going to bring folks together. And so I've been convening um, groups of leaders for almost eight years at Aspen via the Socrates program, which was created to introduce uh, leaders to, um, to, you know, uh, diverse uh, contemporary leadership topics that are impacting them in ways they may or may not know. The very first Socrates seminar in 1994 was on digital democracy because this thing called the internet was happening and people wanted to know how this would impact that democracy. Um, and uh, to put a bow on that, this in Medellin about 60 days ago, we did a redux of that seminar, the very first one in, from 94 with a group of Colombians on a mountaintop in Medellin, you know, and have we gone too far with digital democracy? Is there just very interesting topics that we're able to have around the world. So do about 30 of those a year. And then via the project on belonging, created a couple of years ago, 
um, that program is designed to elevate the conversation on diversity, equity, inclusion to the outcome we're trying to achieve rather than the strategy and what people are trying to be compliant to. Uh, but the outcome we're trying to achieve is a, a land where we all belong and should enjoy equitable opportunities to thrive. And I think it's incumbent upon executives to set a tone and expectation for their organizations that this is a place where people will belong. Getting to the thriving part is a little challenging, but that's where, you know, they pay people the big bucks to figure out. Yeah. And yes. And we're going to talk about what are some of those challenges. So let's just dive right in. How do you, like, what's your starting point? I mean, you've been traveling the world. You work with many different individuals across many different cultures and countries. And I even, I just love even sharing that we can take a lot of these leadership topics and they are very shared challenges, problems, skill sets. And like, I love that leadership bridges the gap in a mm. lot of different ways. But yeah. you know, we're going to be talking about how to build that. How do you do it? Because if you're doing it around the world, so I want to just say that for any leader, that if you're able to do it across many different audiences and platforms, you can do it in your organization, Certainly. no matter what the diversity or the challenges look like. But let's baseline it. Cordell, what's the starting point? How do you or how do you define belonging? What does that even mean? You know, it stems from what I call a civic faith. Um, this notion that I want to live and thrive in a place where people have an opportunity to live and thrive. Like if you just concede that basic point of commonality with every other, you know, mammal around you, um, I, I think you're in a probably good mental place. And then it gets to the executive setting the tone. Um, their job, uh, their metric, if you will, is is obviously shareholder growth and contribution to society, but also, you know, limiting um, confusion, putting out good vibes, if you will, with, with a good products, um, good corporate ethos. Um, they they want to create environments where people want to come, work, stay, and grow. It's very expensive to relate to replace people, you know. Um, for a low level, say a factory level worker, say like an Amazon place, you're looking at between twenty and thirty thousand dollars per FTE. And so when you're running through people so quickly, at some point you're going to run out of supplies. But you're also it's just a churn on the organization and expense and time. Uh, before I was better at the single leadership, I was going through people a lot too. And what helped me figure out that the problem was me is that I didn't want to spend half of my year interviewing people. You know, I was like, how much time? I should be out there raising money. I should be out there leading seminars. And I'm sitting in a room because people don't seem to want to work with me for more than six months. So the problem was me. It wasn't them. Um, but back to what I was saying. Uh, so I, I think organizations, leaders have an obligation, um, a fiduciary duty, in fact, to to limit attrition. Because that's a, that's a lagging and leading indicator that there's something wrong in your organization. And I do believe that organizations where people feel like they belong just execute better. Um, it's also just, again, good feelings, good vibrations out to the rest of their lives. People are a little more than just their jobs, even though we spend about 80% of our adult lives doing working. But you know who you work for, how you treat it there, that has an impact on you. It impacts how you treat others. And so I think we have some greater obligations to society other than shareholder value, but these are all connected. So that's how I, I arrived there, getting folks around this conversation. What does belonging mean in my context? Yeah, I love that. And you said a lot there, belonging, that civic faith, but also why it matters to an organization, that cost of attrition, when someone feels that they don't belong, 
they'll find the place that they do belong. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. Because why would I want to? I spend so much time at work. I want to make sure yes. I feel valued and seen. And it you talk about the community. <laughs> yeah. Why do you think yeah. maybe we can just focus quickly on that? Like, why does it matter so much to that individual? Because you talked a lot about the benefits to that organization. Of mm-hmm. course, the cost of attrition, our ability to accomplish our goals or produce shareholder value. Um, obviously leaders need to do it, but as an individual, why do you think it's so incredibly important to feel that you belong? Yeah. You know, 80% of our adult existence, you know, maybe a hundred thousand hours, if you live to be 72 to 75 years old is spent in the employ of someone or something, you know, just thousands and thousands of hours. I admit it shouldn't be perfect 100% of the time, maybe not even 80% of the time. I would say my supple meter should be about 30%. 30% of the time, it's, it's going to suck. Just things I don't want to do. But for there, there are people out there that that scale is way off. Like, it's drudgery every single day. And so if I don't feel like you care about me, if, I don't, like if I'm just a revenue-generating entity to you, I don't care about the quality of product. I don't care about customer care. I don't care if you win because I'm not winning. Like, if this is, it's like having an enemy in your home. You don't want that. You want everyone on the same team. Moreover, I, I can walk with my boots. I can go to the next factory. I can take your trade secrets, your policies, your, your key staffers. I can tell those other recruiters who they are and how your organization works. And so I think it becomes a competitive advantage. Like you want to make sure this, this is not awful for people. Um, cause it's just a, a horrible environment to be in. And this one where mistrust is the only end product. What, what do you think gets us there? You know, in terms of, I love that description of an enemy in your home. Like, so when we don't have that feeling of belonging, what are the actions that actually, you know, if we think about real life examples, what typically gets someone to that place to say, you know what, don't care, not doing it. I'm going to take this. I will dismiss this. I won't, you know, I'll quiet quit. What do you think gets there? What are those actions that maybe create that place of disconnection? I think, uh, when you're not engaging your employees on, on workforce policies, like meaning you, you come up with a policy that may save money. Okay, I need everyone to clock in exactly on time. Does that reflect the reality of what it takes to get to the, the job site? Well, will people feel like you're shorting them at all? Okay, like will they, will they hustle to get there because of this policy? Um, or maybe really stringent sick leave. So people feel like, you know, I'll just stay here. It doesn't make sense for you. They're maybe get a doctor's note. Now I got the half of the floor sick. Okay, half the building is sick and productivity goes way down, all because I don't trust my people enough to be out sick when they're actually sick. I mistrust them. And there are ways you can write policy that says, I don't trust you. I will treat you like a child that you are. You do what I say or else. And guess what? People go with the or else. It it will show up in your organization somewhere, somehow. I'll give you a perfect example. Um, I was involved in a very contentious union negotiating about my gosh, 13, 14 years ago. And one of the sticking points was over sick leave. Now, the policy at the time for that district, and it had been for 30 years, is that every employee had eight days, no, 10 days of sick leave. And it was use it or lose it. Okay? So what do you think the percentage of people who use sick leave was? across? It was an organization of 5,000 people. Just a quick gander. Any guess? Oh, my God. I don't even know the scale of people that actually called in sick. They use use all 10 sick days. Oh, I, I bet 10%. 100%. You now, what does that tell you? Days? Use all the sick days. Everyone was sick exactly 10 days. That's because they saw it 
as a user lose. Yeah. And they said, that's essentially vacation. Those are yeah. 10 extra days of vacation. So we flipped the strip a bit, right? Because we were like, well, that's, that's unreasonable. There's no possible way that all 5,000 employees are sick exactly 10 days. So just, it's just not possible. So the union was very upset. Like, you can't take this as a benefit we've had for 30 years, blah, blah, blah. So what we did was, okay, how about this? Here's the cost savings if people are sick on the average, say, three days. We will share the cost savings with you 50-50. Now, the very next year at ratification, sick leave in some school buildings went down to 0%. Why? Because your colleagues are now saying, listen, you're impacting our money. Bring your butt to school like everyone else is going to go to school, okay? Or you and I are going to have a problem. They started policing themselves. And guess what? Their checks were big. Love that. But you, but you can only get there if you're having a real conversation. You're showing data. You're saying, we're trying to solve a mutual problem. I trust you as a partner. I'm not your enemy. We all belong here. Let's figure out how we can belong together. How can we thrive? That's how you get there. That's, that's one example. It just came to me. I love that example because it shows the benefit of stepping beside your employee. What are your challenges? We have these yeah. mutual goals or mutual mm-hmm. problems. And how mm-hmm. do we solve them together instead of I'm just going to make the decision and send it that way and create the or else moment? Exactly. Exactly. Hi, everyone. It's Jen. And I'm just coming to you because we need your help. Presscom International, the organization that hosts the Leadership Habit podcast that I proudly work for, is looking to expand their network of people that are committed to creating more ethical, engaging, and human leaders. Now, how is that relevant to you? Well, we're looking for referrals. Do you know someone that is interested in giving back and being an entrepreneur and owning their own business, or that wants to make a difference and is passionate about leadership development? Well, I'm excited to share with you that Crestcom has just launched a referral program. If you know someone, maybe it's a past mentor or a boss that's interested in making a career change and wanting to leverage the knowledge and their experience in the classroom, send them our way. We have this new program and here's the scoop. We've designed an easy to use referral form available on crestcom.com forward slash referrals. And you can visit the site submit your referrals, and access all of the rules along with required terms and conditions. Here's the sweet spot of this. If you refer a successful candidate, we'll give you $2,500. Now we want to expand and make our mission even greater, but we can't do that without your help. So if you know someone that would be interested in becoming a franchisee for an amazing leadership development organization that wants to get into the classroom and make a difference, head on over to crestcom.com forward slash referrals today and help us impact your workplaces and the leaders that you work with. Here's the only caveat. Please note that this program is currently open to applicants based in the United States only. Maybe it's diving in then from your perspective, what are the action steps? Like, how do you actually begin to build that civic faith or belonging? I, I like a centering mechanism of just dialogue. You know, I, I have an organization that I run called the Festival of the Diaspora, and I call it the Secular Tent Revival. And if you grew up in evangelical in the South, like I did in the 80s, you'll know exactly what I'm talking about. Something that happens in the summer where you're, you know, got the little mosquito catches on the side and a dozen every five minutes. And I should say every five seconds, a lot of mosquitoes in Southern Virginia. It's like swampland. <laughs> and, uh, but you would have these amazing services on the inside and you would see strangers on that. We would, we would have conversations there and the sermons were different and the music was different because it was just much more open. Just didn't feel the walls brought a formality that actually created boundaries in some ways. 
And some people didn't feel like worthy to go in the building. I don't have the right clothes. You know, it creates some, some dynamics. You got to create that environment of that tent revival at your office. And I said, you got to have that stimming mechanism being a conversation on things you want to have broad agreement on. And so I'm like, say this is IBM. The last thing you should talk about is technology. What you should be talking about is becoming an inclusive republic. What does that look like? Let's look at American history. Now, this is where we live. And, and have, uh, you know, uh, folks come in and, and provide uh, that, that big picture view of where we've been and where we're going as a nation. Get people excited about what's possible. And the fact that this is an enterprise that we'll be co-creating. And this is our part as the IBM Corporation, co-creating that future that we all talked about and got excited about and, and had these great role play exercises on. And so you start with fun and, and, and decentering exercises and then slowly, you start working on things where things are a little gray, where they be maybe a little less agreement um, and um, challenging. But you've created a basis um, through civil discourse to have those tougher conversations. I think one of the problems with the way we DNI is typically done now, one is highly accusatory, two is forced, um, and three, who wants to sit there and hear? how awful things are. And we have to do this exercise as a result of how awful things are. Um, that's not a narrative, I think, that gives people joy and comfort. So we had to change the narrative. We'll get to the same outcome, but I think how you say things and how you frame things is as important as what you say. Absolutely. Well, and I feel like you said a lot there in terms of the starting point, but maybe we can quick pivot into the DEI fails and then come back to how to create that. Yeah. You know, the accusatory nature, the forced nature of it, talking about how bad thing is, bad things are. Uh, it's that shame and blame. I think that was popular. shame and blame. Yeah. Why, why are DEI efforts not maybe? Yeah, I, I saw this. I know I saw it in an organization where it was very much like it created this me versus you. You're a bad person. Yeah. And it didn't create a productive dialogue. It created one more people who are actually like wanting to leave. And then mm-hmm. you miss the opportunity to actually have important yeah. conversations yeah. to yeah. help people. But what do, what do you mean? Like DEI fails. What does that look like in action from the, acu- act, like the accusatory standpoint? Is it saying like pitting the me versus you? What do you mean by that? Yeah, I, I think it's a, a philosophical misunderstanding. And, and that philosophical misunderstanding stems from the very beginning of what we now know as diversity, equity, inclusion efforts starting in the 60s over Nixon. He wanted a notion of who was working for the federal government, recognizing that the federal government was representing an even growing percentage of GDP. Now it's one-fifth, almost one-fourth of GDP. Um, but at that time, it, it was growing. He's like, hmm, okay, well, we can actually direct policy through our procurement policies. We can, I don't have to go to Congress and say, do this. I can just say, well, I'm only going to spend or only provide contracts with vendors that are doing the following. And that first thing that we're doing is providing a census who works there. And so you started getting um, some implicit pressures um, just by asking the question, how many women do you have working for you in senior management? How many people of color? Uh, how many, you know, young people, older people? Like you, you want to have an, you don't want to say zero. Okay. And so no one has to tell you, uh, do this, do that. But you figure if I'm going to win more business, by doing these things, you're going to do it. That's a logical reaction because of your fiduciary duty to increase shareholder value. And so where I think we fail is that we never tied that work to a greater outcome. Okay, we just evolved, 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 evolved. Um, we, we started involving a little critical race theory, critical feminist theory, um, and just critical studies in general. 
um, and I think rightly so, uh, attacking the general narrative that everything's just been fine for 248 years. That's not true. Uh, but everything hasn't been awful either. That is also not true. Okay. And so, um, uh, that lack of connection to the broader objective is why DNI often fails. People think it, they think it, the objective function is to shame and blame. No, this is a strategy to get us to an outcome that we have not defined. That outcome, everyone belongs, everyone gets to thrive. They get an opportunity to thrive. You can get multiple shots in this life in the United States of America. That is our goal. Like if you say that first, then you start working back to some of the actual strategy and more challenging parts of DNI. It's a very different conversation because now I know how it's connected. But this yeah. is like a dangling chat. It's not connected to any voter ballot or anything. Like, what is this chat floating in space? What is this thing? I don't think I like it. I think I do like it. So that you're debating the wrong thing. And that's, I think, where we fail. Yeah, you brought up a lot. Like, the importance of having that big why or the purpose yeah. that you mm-hmm. us. And mm-hmm. getting that person why it's relevant to them. Like, getting their self-interest in it. But it also sounds like there's a lot of conversations that need to be had. Conversations Absolutely. that are often maybe said once and not followed up on. And so mm-hmm, people mm-hmm. don't understand the strategy or what you're trying to do yeah. or why it matters. I mean, I can relate why it to that. And why they're positions. connected. Yeah. yeah. I mean, you look at how like really well executed strategic plans. I was a part of one experience back in uh, 2012 that still stays with me at the National Alliance Public Charter School. We had a uh, the gentleman comes external consultant and he literally started at the janitors and worked his way up and all the different staff levels to the CEO. I was CEO at the time, just watching him just leave this masterful work. And every single person in that enterprise understood why a table being claimed was additive to the overall objectives of the organization. It was all linked. And I'm like, man, everyone felt motivated. Everyone was like, I, I see my role. Now, I may or may not accept my role, but I see how this role connects with the greater outcomes. We don't have that as a nation. We're, we're, we've lost our national narrative. And I think a lot of the, the issues that we're having and our um, body republic, uh, and certainly just civil discourse, is that we can't agree on a narrative. No one is saying, hey, here's five different narratives about where we could be or where we're going and what we are. Let's debate which one makes the most sense. We're just not having it. Uh, and I think things are chaotic because of it. Yeah. No, I mean, on the... That- on that environment or that level, they are a little chaotic. Yeah. But if we yeah. even bring that back to organizations and thinking about what are these common goals that you could unite people around? Is it specifically on strategy? Is it about benefits, right? You mm-hmm. talked about mm-hmm. the, the union example of the benefits and how we use that. What are some common things that you notice or challenges in terms of organizations? What challenges or goals do they have? You know, if you talk about that starting point is creating that shared goal, what are examples of a shared goal? Um, one example I saw, this is, I'm trying to think of this organization. It must have been uh, one of the federal departments that I won't name that I worked with this year um, out in um, Rocky Mountain area. Um, they had, they have very disparate teams that are all digital because they're, you know, working in national parks or, uh, you know, leading security for uh, different government facilities and just these sparse parts of the country. And so there was no esprit de corps. And so they brought me in to like to start doing just something that feels like we're, we're uh, connected in a way. And so I kind of focus my, my, um, my uh, content on just the evolution of, of national parks and the expand the Western expansion of the United States 
and and how they are part of the stewardship of that big dream like this you know and i brought it back to the founding fathers like remember you know these are folks from very small european countries um they were perfectly fine with a coastal country of, of you know stretching you know um two million miles just along the coast that, that's fine that's kind of like mother europe uh but when you have an opportunity to expand west knowing there's a lot of bad facts there but this idea of a continental country with safe neighbors on both sides and how that's helped uh this country grow into the prosperous place it is for so many and like you us are part of that and and so that was like, like okay all right now i may not love my facility that i'm over but I see how it fits. And so I think everyone wants to be connected. And I guess belonging is so much about being connected to, right? Connected to something bigger than yourself. Uh, something you may not see the full fruition of, but knowing that the work you're doing is additive to that thing, or adding to the momentum of that thing happening. That's, you want to be more to something. And so like a boring event or, or centering event, what you want to call it, I see a lot of that in organization. Now they use different terms for it. I kind of help them think about like, I understand you're talking about strategic planning, but you need something that's going to gel the group together. Yeah, that's what I need. Yeah, gel. Yeah, yeah. I'm like, all right, well, here's some ideas. Let's, let's work on that. Let's do, you know, two or three of these, get folks really excited, uh, coming out of their comfortable zones, feeling safe, uh, and then let's have deeper conversations about other things. And so um, you got to set the stage. And that's a lot of the work that I do with folks is setting the stage for them to go deeper. And every organization needs that as a starting point. Something that sets the stage and then go deeper. I love that. So the community, well, it sounds like there's this really strong mission purpose. This is why we've all brought here or why we're all brought here together to be, you know, stewards of this mission. We value your input. Sounds like there's a really great emphasis on community, the type of like, it's almost like they're operating as their own, I don't know, little mini countries within an organization. Like Mm -hmm. this is our purpose. But then you talk about connection and you said that you shared a few different tips. I'm curious, what do you, you know, there's that piece of like knowing the mission for an employee. Like I might know what's important to an organization, but still feel disconnected. What are some yeah. daily like steps or, you know, <clears throat> maybe baby steps that a leader could take to start to build that connection? Yeah, I uh, did this once. This would have been in 2008. Um, I don't know why I'm good with dates today. I must have slept really well. <laughs> like dates are coming to me today. <laughs> <laughs> Anyhow, uh, 2008 was part of a big strategic planning process for school. There's the same one I ended up uh, being in a labor negotiator for a few years down the road. And we did a role decomposition, uh, literally uh, this whole process of rewriting every single role um, so that you would see like these certain job areas, these job families. And people had, you know, maybe there's four in each job family. And you would say like your code was four, three, seven. And you see what those, those general tasks were and how it connected to the strategic plan. And so that role definition, right, and working with the employee to fully describe what they do, what's compliant, what's required, all these things, they were a part of that process. All of a sudden, you, you start to see the picture. Again, I'm not saying you have to accept this, the, your, the role, but I'm saying you do understand how it fits. And moreover, you see what I need to thrive, to move up, and then how that contributes to the mission. And so what can I do in my current role to start working? So I'm demonstrating that I'm ready for that next one. And so people begin to take it on their own, but it is expensive to do what we did there. We actually had to get a big grant from a large education foundation, a couple million dollars, a whole team of consultants, a lot of consultants. And it took a year 
um, and interviewing every single employee and breaking down their jobs and all and how it connected. And then it's community-wide process. But guess what? By 2010, we were ready to have the most um, advanced conversation with our labor partners because we had done all that work three years before. And we were able to actually have a real conversation like, listen, there's a lot of ways we will share those gains with you, but we got to move forward as an organization if we're going to achieve the broader goal of student achievement. And guess what? We got there. We did. Well, and if that's the undertaking of doing a restructure or reorg is already huge, but I love the intention behind it of, you know, not only taking the role definition, but looking at what are the specific actions that you do that contribute towards this yeah. as one way to build that connection or that sense of purpose. I know we're going to have to start wrapping up our dialogue and I'm curious. Oh, no. <laughs> I know. What would be any final like insights or thoughts that you would want to share with our audience as it relates to building an inclusive culture? You know, I believe in uh, what I call the Luther Vandross uh, theory of, of uh, talent management. You got to love the ones you with. You know, we, we can't pine on the, the folks we don't have or the folks we would like. Uh, we, we have to have the love that we're present. And when you love the present, um, you're willing to do what it takes to, to make it even better. And so I, that, that realization that we have to stop pining for things we can't have, I think is important. Where they said that the separate, the distance between um, expectation and reality is pain, you know? And so like we can, we can solve our own pain points by just saying, Hey, for this moment in time, this is where I am. I'm going to dig in. I'm going to enjoy it. Any advice I give myself in my twenties and early thirties? was to calm down, accept the present. This is added up to the future that you want. You will get there, but calm down. So that's my advice to organizations too. Calm down, accept the present. Number two, talk to your people. Especially talk to the ones that leave. Tell them, you know, why, what is it about us that makes you want to leave? Is it, is it, was it money? Is there something I can do? Like be open, um, create these safe environments where people will give you honest feedback. Bring some external reviewers in to do 360s on them. You may not lead nearly as well as you think you do. Okay. Maybe it's you and it's not them. Maybe, you know, and do you step away or do you evolve? Can you evolve? Be honest with yourself. Be open to, to change because we all want to get on the right path. And once we get on the right path, great things will happen for the organization and ourselves. And so you may be on the wrong path and that's okay. That's okay. Um, the third thing I do after you like, you know, ask for feedback, um, Start following um, two types of people. One is I call uh, your roadrunner. This is the person you want to chase. You want to be like that organization. You also need your anti-hero. And that's someone that's like you, but just lives under a dark cloud. They just can't do right. They just can't get the organization that turned around. You need both of them in your life. I'm not saying you follow what the, the, uh, the anti-hero does, but you watch them so you don't repeat what they do. I even keep that in my personal life. I have roadrunners. In, in my life, and I have anti-heroes that I keep in the periphery. I don't engage, but I, I keep my eye on them. I love that. Well, and I think it brings down to even an individual leader. If you love some things about your organization and dislike some things like about your organization, become the researcher. You yeah. know, identify the roadrunner, identify the anti-hero. I one mm. for my coaching school. They have a founding or they have a foundational principle. Every person you meet is both your teacher and your student. Mm -hmm. And that's what came to mind as you shared that is that you can, even the person that you dislike, that you don't want to follow that, like begrudgingly, you have to listen to or interact with, 
what can you learn from them? And so absolutely with them, just like you know, we can take less purpose, like less things personal. When yes. We identify those antiheroes because it is way like whatever they're doing has nothing to do with you. Has nothing. It's just your turn <laughs> if you heard it. That's all. <laughs> <laughs> and but it's it's I always liked doing that because then when you're in that curiosity mindset, you can observe them and think. Well, how did that conversation or the way that they positioned that message resonate with people? What is the water cooler talk that happened after that? Because you can watch the eye rolls happen that that anti-hero is sometimes very, very oblivious too. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. And the roadrunner, I love that is like, you know, that's really the demonstration of a growth mindset instead of thinking, you know, that natural place of comparison and then feeling intimidated maybe by someone's strong performance or abilities. What can we learn from these people that are willing to take these risks or have these different conversations? What are those nuggets that you could take into your day-to-day to use as a leader? Even if it's just that mindset, that willingness to say, I can handle the bad feedback. 360s are yes. fun, but there's like yes. nuggets of truth in them. They really are. Uh, they really are. Cordell, where can our audience get in touch with you? How can they get to know more? How can they, yeah, how can they connect? Well, um, I'm most active on LinkedIn. So Cordell Carter, I, I, letter, so Cordell Carter II. Uh, so you can follow me on LinkedIn. I post a lot of things there. Um, I also hope my next big event is the Festival Diaspora. It's on February 22nd through the 25th, 2024 in Rio de Janeiro, Brazil. And you go to the Festival of the Diaspora, all one word, or I should say all together, .org. And register, we'd love to see you at the largest secular tent revival in the Americas. <laughs> And, um, and otherwise, I'm, I'm pretty public on a variety of platforms, Instagram, Cordell underscore speak. Um, and uh, yeah, those are the three ways. Cordell, thank you so much for sharing your information, but thank you so much for taking your time to talk thank about you. the importance of inclusion. I appreciate your perspective. I also loved your closing remarks too about the roadrunner versus the anti-hero, but get out there and connect with your people, build that purpose and why, and that sense of connection, that big picture view. Thank you so much. Those are all the nuggets that I wrote down when I was talking with you. But Cordell, thank you so much for coming on the show. And we are very grateful to have you. And I can't wait to see where you go next in terms of blazing the trail of creating inclusion around the world. Well, thank you so much, Jen. I'm looking forward to seeing you around then. Thank you so much for listening to this week's episode of the Leadership Habit Podcast. I hope you enjoyed the conversation with Cordell. Connect with him. Find out more about the Festival of the Diaspora. And of course, if you are a leader and you're looking for tactical tools or approaches, mindsets, frameworks that we need to actually create an inclusive culture, head on over to crosscom.com. Inclusion is incredibly important to us. Creating a culture where people can thrive obviously is our goal, but it starts with developing the leader. And if you want to develop yourself, find out more at crosscom.com. There you can request a complimentary leadership skills workshop for you and your team to have those conversations, to find out how you can work better together. And of course, if you know someone that might benefit from listening to this conversation, don't forget to share this episode with them. Thank you so much for listening. Until next time, take it easy, everyone.